Blog Talk Radio. Today, we're going to be doing a bit more than thinking. We're going to be talking about arts and sciences education. Um, we're going to be talking about the now, 21st century, and we're in the middle of it. And we're going to be talking about um, context for responsible revolution exploration. And we are here today with Dr. April Massey. Um, she is my dean, she's our dean at UDC for the College of Arts and Sciences. And we are here today to talk about um, transforming and building bridges across disciplines, um, talking about humanities, talking about STEM, talking about communication. And of course, we've Started off with that. Um, I've been doing some work with engineering. I've been doing some work with folks in biology and chemistry. Um, and we've already heard from Rosie Sneed. We've already heard from Kate Klein and her students. And now we're going to hear from Dr. Massey. Um, and Dr. Massey, you are also in psychology, correct? No, I'm actually a speech-language pathologist. See? This is, the, <laughs> this is why we need to know more. We need to know more. Pathologists, and that's a, that's a science in and of itself. And so we need to build bridges. We need to know each other better. And so um, let's talk. Let's, 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 let's talk about revolution. Yes, 
So I, first of all, I want to say thank you to you. I want to say thank you to you uh, for having me back. I appreciate the invitations um, because I know that you have a lot of people who want to be able to use this platform to talk about the good that they're doing, not just at UDC, but you've been talking to people around the world. And so as much as you've been taking UDC to the world, you've been bringing the world to us. So I I just need to say, first of all, thank you for giving me an opportunity to, to share your platform with you to talk about the good that happens in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of the District of Columbia. I have been impressed by the ways that you have really wielded the power of this platform that you've created, not just for the scholarship of faculty members, but for positioning students in, in places where they have a seat at the table and that their voices carry the same types of authority that you've allowed faculty members on the platform. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about why this title, uh, Arts and Sciences Education Now, Context for Responsible Revolution. Um, and I don't mean that to sound radical in a negative way. I mean it to sound uh, forward-reaching in only the most positive of ways. Um, you know, when you think about revolution, you often think about something being, being pushed on you in ways that you couldn't have expected, wouldn't have wanted, um, and usually you think of that in kind of a political uh, framework. And I think the pandemic created a lot of that for us, right? It, it, it created uh, a tilt in the world that we, people argue, should have seen coming, but we didn't. And when it was upon us, uh, for the most part, the world wasn't ready to respond. Um, and we live in a very interesting city, a city that is uh, very diverse. And that diversity offers some of the most amazing uh, lived experiences for the residents of the city, but it also um, has allowed us to see that there are some real disconnects across the city in the ways that some people in the city are able to live and others uh, are not able to experience the same levels of quality of life. And so the pandemic pushed us in places where it made us, it made us, uh, have to respond even though we weren't necessarily ready to respond and we weren't necessarily clear about all the things we were needing to respond to. So I think an arts and sciences college, which really does at its core have the humanities and the social sciences as these points of intersection for inquiry and um, a responsive kind of application of this intellectual, you know, kind of fountain um, that needs yes. to be poured into the communities that, that surround it. And I think it made us think about, we think about, we show up on that campus, we work until this happened every day, kind of going about the business of the ways that we chose to do our work. But this pandemic made us think about, you know, how, how truly mindful are we about the ways that we see and connect to the communities that we say we serve, how truly mindful are we in, in the ways that we do that work? And so for me, this pandemic forced me into a place when I think about showing up, what does that really mean? What does that really mean for the constituencies that the college is wedded to? How does that look when faculty, staff, students, community partners are engaged? Who truly does have a seat at the table? What does that seat allow in terms of a real voice in the conversation? And how are those conversations being made actionable so that 
everybody can benefit from the good of the institution. And I think that's what an arts and sciences college does for an institution for higher education. It really is the base in terms of the ways that we think about the social purpose of, of education. And so for me, this title and this thought is around how, how are we really showing up? What do we understand our purpose to be? And how are we demonstrating to constituents, constituencies, a real commitment to making that actionable in only the most appropriate ways and the best ways of doing that? Okay. Okay. That's a that's enough. That's 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 a hell of a start. That's a hell of a start. <laughs> when I saw that title, um, I I guess one of the things I I started thinking about is I started thinking about how am I how am I showing up? And that's mm-hmm. a question that I that I think you know I've been I've been dealing with. Literally, what do I look like to other people? I guess if you're not and what do I sound like to other people? And I have to think about that in terms of my colleagues, including you, but also students and also the, the broad and general world. And it's so important to, to consider that um, in the context of, you know, who has access, who doesn't have access, um, what does education, what does higher education mean, um, what baggage do these words carry, right? Some people think higher education um, translates to upper class, right? Um, and if we don't break that down, if we don't unpack that, there's that danger of that ism, classism, and if you intersect it with racism and um, and, and sexism and transphobia and, and homophobia, um, and, and ableism. And ableism, oh ableism God, should, yeah. should be there too. And I think this is the thing. I'm, glad, I'm so glad you brought this up and took us down this road because I think one of the things that disappoints me most about the, the, the modern-day conversation around who is college for, what is college intended to do, and this need to create these divides between whether or not college is a place where one has the freedom to develop thought, understanding of how you put thought into action, ability to engage with uh, people who represent different perspectives, to learn how to engage in argument in ways that are civil and generate new opportunity. So, yes, that yes. is one of the reasons that college exists, one of the reasons that it's that it, that it has evolved into places where people love to be because there's a freedom of exploration. And I don't think that yes. that ties to class or age or race or socioeconomic status or ableness, you know, whether or not you're able-bodied. Or, I think that that's a space that everybody should be able to take advantage of. Now, should, should colleges, universities also be places that gives people a path to uh, career opportunities, most definitely. 
but it's not an either or. It's a both and. And I think that yes. that we need to be very careful about allowing the conversation to kind of default to that place where we have groups pitted against each other around what college campuses can be. So, so what if they might have been intended for a certain segment of the population? What we know is that the benefits of a college experience they, they, they're not colored by how you show up. Any person that can be engaged in the experience can benefit. And so why would we not give people the benefit of, of the opportunity to see if it's a fit for them? Maybe it's not a fit for everybody. But would I be able to say, oh, you know what, that segment of the population, I don't think this would probably be a fit for. And perhaps, no, because I wouldn't have wanted anyone to say that to me. And as a little brown girl, there, there might have been people that said that about me, right? Yeah. I just feel like college is a place where I don't care how old you are. I don't care what you look like. I don't, I don't care how you show up. It's a place where you likely will find something that will be transformative for you. And I don't think the world has the right to deny that of anyone, Right. And so mm. I also think it's a place that allows you to get set on a path toward that thing that you want in terms of a job, next level of education, activism, civic engagement at any level, any place, and also just being able to have to kind of fine tune the currency that allow you to navigate the life that you want, right? Because one of the things that I think is really um one of the gold, um, the nuggets of a college experience is that once you exit college, there's all kind of data to support that. People with college degrees experience things in some ways that other people that don't have a college degree don't, right? But there, right. there's a, an opportunity to understand a power or set of powers, these currencies that you always had. College life doesn't give you necessarily stuff that you didn't have kind of a proclivity for, but it helps you build real skill and expertise around those things. And it also gives you a sense of confidence in that authority that allows you to move about the world with levels of freedom and satisfaction that perhaps you, you, you don't understand if you don't have a safe place, kind of an incubator space is what college serves to be for a lot of people, where you can play through the things that you're thinking about, wondering about, wanting to know more about, and it's a safe place to hypothesize, to put those things into action, experience success, experience failure. And who would deny any person that by creating mm. an argument about whether or not, okay, well, this should only be for you to get a job. And if you can't get a job there, you shouldn't be allowed to experience that. Right. Well, it's, it's something that I've had to consider. Um, in my conversations with my with my parents, um, mm-hmm. you've met my mom, but you haven't met my father. Mm-hmm. My father, no, my father, no. Well, he wrote his autobiography, and he did it um, as a part of therapy to deal with anger, anxiety, and depression, mm-hmm. something that I suffer from, and he is an example. Um, I, you know, my, both my parents 
are, you know, I follow, I, I follow what, you know, my parents and we still have conversations. And so I'm going to help him publish his book with my friend Bill Valesio. Um, he and I went to grad school at UConn. He's working class. He's Italian-American. He's from um, Providence, Rhode Island. And both he and I saw and experienced rejection and exclusionary tactics because we were perceived as outsiders. He, because he is working class, of working class background, um, his, his, his grandparents were immigrants from Italy. Um, so, yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's experienced that. And I experienced it as somebody who comes from a working class background and who comes um, from an African-American background as well. And so we both, um, we both have decided to take on this task. My father tried to go to Cleveland State. It wasn't called Cleveland State back in the day. But he was rejected um, because the professors back then were openly racist. And um, he thought for decades that he was not talented, didn't have a voice. But my father has a voice. He literally sings in German. He was taught to sing in German by, you know, by his church director. And he can write. He just needed a platform. And so my father, who will be 82 this year, is using the technology that supposedly only millennials, Gen X, and younger can use. But technology is available to everybody, and so is college. And so, yes, that's, an, that's a, you know, to me, when you say that, that's a reinforcement of, what I've been feeling as I've gone through my experiences um, in in higher education. And so, yeah, I'm feeling that, definitely. Thank you. So, so you know, um, I'm sorry, one of the things that I think is really important, and I Uh think that, you know, UDC is a place that allows this to, um, to live in the most remarkable ways is that um, there's a freedom at UDC, and I don't know if everybody has an appreciation for a freedom to kind of find not just in avenues of scholarship, but I think that there are these, these free spaces where people can explore ways to improve quality of life, starting with, people on the campus. And so I have been, I have been, um, and I shared this in Dean's Council last week, uh, Provost went around the room and around the table and asked people just to share the things that they were grateful for. And so across the last three years, um, maybe five years, there have been a couple of initiatives around leadership and particularly leadership for women. That university has really given me the space to explore, we've been, uh, you know, uh, really um, appreciated that we've been able to get some small grant funding that's helped us with some of these things, but we've really been able to plant and now institutionalize at UDC these remarkable vehicles for 
helping people, um, some of the um, initiatives focused on women, uh, really finding voice and allowing those opportunities for exploration to set people on paths that they might not have believed to be possible for them. And when you change the understanding of voice for a segment of a population, you really change the way that communities can evolve and become. And so I'm really, really very grateful for, for that freedom to understand the value that I can kind of add uniquely in the UDC tapestry and being given the space to do that. And so this year, one of the things that we did, pandemic swung us around, right? And so, and you, you were victimized by this too, because you would have been all over the country physically traveling to do presentations. And the pandemic stopped everybody in their tracks. And for the first half of the year, none of us, no, around the country, nobody knew, okay, should we shift this to virtual? No, this is probably just going to be a, a month or two maybe, and then we'll be back to normal. But normal hasn't, we haven't resumed any sense of normalcy. And so we had to make decisions about how do you create spaces for these amazing academics, scholars, intellectuals, who can't do what they usually do to share their knowledge and help plant it in other places so it continues to grow and produce good outcomes for students who become the next generation of everything that the world needs, right? So at, right. at UDC and CAS, we created our own platform for faculty to have professional opportunities to share, to share to the campus and to share on a national platform. And I just appreciate the opportunities to think out of the box, to have been prepared to think out of the box, because a lot of people didn't kind of know what to do. But because we had already started doing some things with at, a year ago, two years ago, we'd already equipped more than 25% of our workforce in CAS with mobile technology. So we started asking people when they came in new, do you want a desktop computer or do you want mobile technology in the way of a laptop or an iPad? What is it that you want? We put pencils with iPads so that people could do remote signature. They could, and we just kind of untethered people to the physical space. We, 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 not knowing that this was going to come, but understanding that the world was tilting toward a, a higher dependence on you being able to work from any place in the world and not having to come to a physical location to one, right. to say that you're working, and two, get your work done. So we, having transitioned now, better than 50% of our workforce is equipped in the College of Arts and Sciences. Now everybody is. But leading to pandemic, we had about 50, right. 55% of all faculty members who were already equipped to work remotely. And so when this happened, right. the pivot for us was so much easier, so much smoother, almost seamless, because we'd already been thinking like this, which allowed us to get, right. once we were able to secure the classroom experience, it allowed us to think about, okay, but you need to be able to do all these other things. You've got to create a scholarly community that's virtual. You've got to create a place where your faculty members come together and share and where that sharing can be broadcast out to the nation. How do you do that? And so I'm just really proud of the ways that we 
because of the work that we had been doing years prior, it all came to a head, but in the most amazing and value-adding ways. And I think that as much as this has been a very rough time, I'm not, I'm not diminishing that this has been a very rough time, not just on the world, not just on the nation, not just on our city, but on our campus community. We have people that UDC has been a lifeline for them, right? And so to not be able to come to campus to share in that community physically has been very, very debilitating for But I think in spite of all of that, we have found ways to create connections that have allowed um, a level of equilibrium to be sustained and some healthy practices to be stood up that I think are giving everybody an opportunity to stay connected, to show up and really see each other, and to make sure that we go forward as a very strong value-adding scholarly community. So, And I think, again, a vehicle like this that you have is a significant part of how that community stays connected. And think about, think about when I started this, um, I wasn't even thinking about podcasting as necessarily something that could be seen as a um, digitalized scholarly space, but here we are. Um, I had already started experimenting with that, but of course, you know, we all know what happened in, in fall of 2019 when I had uh, the grand mal seizure. Um, and um, English department faculty, we all put our heads together and made it possible for me to finish out the semester without having to take leave because we all went online. And mm-hmm. I think about that night when I was in emergency and <laughs> I asked one of the nurses, what's, what's your, what's your wireless connect um, information? And I was able to send out um, an email and, and an announcement to all of my students. So they were caught up. By the time um, you all were trying to inform the students, they already knew. And <laughs> so we didn't know that COVID-19 was going to hit us that spring, but we were already prepared. And, of course, as you know, I've had several seizures since then, and yet we've still been able to keep up. We've been able to keep from falling behind, and that's because, the technology worked to build a bridge across abilities, physical abilities. And so here then lies another example of how we have taken technology to make it so that it's accessible to, um, to more, maybe not everybody, because, of course, there's also the economic issue, and that is... <clears throat> you know, access. And I can tell you from my, from just from my own personal experience, just paying for the wireless, <laughs> um, not to mention all of the other um, bits and pieces. But again, if you have at least something to start with, you can build on that. There's a foundation. And I was able to really see that last week when I participated um, in um, a virtual conference 
that was housed um, at um, University of Edinburgh, um, Scotland. And we had mm-hmm. people from Soldier Theater, University of Virginia, um, other, and oh, literally scholars around the world and community, um, community members from, from um, um, various parts of Scotland who were participating in this digital humanities conference. And what were they talking about? Um, they were talking about translating handwriting, translating materials that had previously been inaccessible. And, of course, that opens up some possibilities for us in our own archives. We are now housing archives for the city of D.C., but what are we going to do with that? As much as we would like to, but we have to start talking about not just the technology, but the humanities, and of course, also talk about um, sociology, psychology, social work. We need everybody, all hands aboard. And so, this is this is an opportunity for us um, to start taking a look at some cutting edge technology and looking at some cutting-edge means of, of scholarly discovery. That's what I see. So, yeah, and that's no, what I'm hearing I think from you're, you. I think you're absolutely right, and I do think it's important that, um, you know, institutions are always very happy about the large grants that come into them, but some of the most important grants that came into UDC this, this year, they weren't big, big, big grants. They were small grants, but that were leveraged in amazing ways. So I think about Amanda Huron and Kim Cruz. They both got grants, but maybe they were eight or $10,000 a piece, but they were used to buy uh, the American Association of Geography, and I'm sure I've just butchered the name of the institution, but they uh, did a call very quickly uh, for uh, their scholars, um, the academics around the country, to apply for these small grants that were intended to give them money immediately, and that money was to be used to immediately put hotspots in the hands of students. So with $10,000, you could buy a number of hotspots, and so while they're not multi-million dollar grants, but a hotspot in the hand of a student who's trying to navigate college with no Wi-Fi feels like you won the, you won the lottery for a million dollars, right? And so between the two right. of them, there were 20 or 30 hotspots that they could put in the hands of students immediately. And so I think that this pandemic, I think, made people understand that it doesn't take a lot of money to shift atmosphere for students, but you have to be strategic in, in the ways that you think about how money can be used, should be used. And you can really help people turn corners in really important ways. But you've got to see the need. You've got to show up. You've got to be paying attention to who's in the room with you, who's in the room beside you. And I think for me as a dean, it really forced me to say to myself, how are you showing up? So if you talk shared governance, who's really at your management table? Who has a voice when they sit at that table with you? Who gets to, how do you? And so you start broadening the table. You start bringing in new chairs. You bring in new people for those chairs. You rotate around. Everybody that shows up, they have a voice, and they get to, to be a part of what happens in that conversation on that day. But more importantly, they then become responsible for taking that conversation back out to their colleagues, 
and making sure that you start to just broaden the circle. And so my hope is that as we navigate through whatever reopening is going to be, that the lessons of this, the lessons that really did reshape the ways that we, that we made a choice to show up for each other, that those don't go away, that we find the, 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 the need, the commitment to institutionalize those so that the, the, the opportunity of a mini-grant for hotspots doesn't get overshadowed when we're back face-to-face because we assume people don't need it. Yeah, people need it because everybody's going to need to be able to be to do what you did, be in a space that needed to have access to people, and you're going to need to have Wi-Fi. You're going to need to have a device. You're going to need to have a – so I'm just really very I'm, – I'm, I'm really very excited about where we are. And so revolution, the use of that word, I could have used evolution, but it really is about change that puts students front of mind, top of mind, that we only see the outcomes that people need to achieve. So I'm going to close with using your father as an example. Is it not amazing that your father denied access to what would have been his state institution, right? Yes. But he has a daughter who finds a way to another in another state, but a state institution that planted her for next levels of education at these this, this exemplary levels of performance. And then you become the college educator that reaches back to your dad and gives him access to the college education that his state university attempted to deny him. That's an amazing story of success. So I hope in his autobiography that your story and the connections across your two stories, is, it figures prominently because that's an amazing story of success for your family. Yeah, and it is. It is, it is part of it. It is part of it indeed. It is. It is. And so um, for me, it, it, it really you know, it really does speak um, to um, the ways in which um, education, um, you know, and the question of, you know, what is education and what, does, what is education supposed to do um, or, and what is it actually doing? Um, it does, it does uh, figure, figure prominently. My mother um, finished her bachelor's degree um, long after... I finished high school, and um, she finished right around the same time as I finished um, finished my, my my bachelor's degree. And so, she and I, in some ways, we you know uh, we both had that you know um, had that that college experience, but we were both doing the same thing: working during the day, going to school at night. Mm. And of mm-hmm. course, finishing at UDC. If UDC wasn't here, I would not have been able to finish um, my bachelor's degree, and I'd probably be still working um, as a as a secretary. Um, and so, it made a difference um, because I was one of those those people who um, ended up having to um, to to pay for uh, my undergrad and to and to finish at night. And so when I 
um, talk to students, um, one of the first things that I do tell them is that, you know, at one point in time I was sitting in your seat. And so it makes a difference, in my opinion, um, that, you know, and students need to hear it. Even if you did not experience that, to show empathy, to show that, okay, there's a bridge, there's a commonality somewhere, and even if it's not immediate, we'll find that. We'll find that bridge or we'll build it. And so I think we have a responsibility, we who are faculty, we have a responsibility um, to take the lead in building um, those, those basics and bringing students along so that they are participating in that process because it is a shared experience. Um, and that's also part of the shared governance part because it's not just in these organizations, it's in the classroom itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's on, the, it's on our campuses. That's why it's important that we all show up. And that's one of the reasons why I make it a point of showing up to town hall um, where it's, it's basically directed towards students and it's not because I want to run my mouth. I want to listen. I want to hear. I want to hear what's going on. Um, you know, with students, I want to hear, um, you know, what, what their needs are. Um, and, of course, um, the last town hall, I brought my, my two-cent class um, and, you know, they were already prepared to ask questions because we were already talking about these issues in the classroom. And so they were able to provide um, our CAO, um, our provost, with their perspective, and he was able to answer those questions and to um, make himself available. And so it really is about um, that word, communication, um, and it really is about using communication to build bridges. And whether we're talking about doing virtual town halls or doing podcasts um, or doing Zoom panels, or whether we are talking about sitting in a room, and one of these days we're going to be able to do that, um, hopefully sooner than later. Um, it's one thing if you have somebody uh, with a big name, big title, showing up and giving a speech. If nobody's responding, there's no progress happening, and we want progress to happen, and so the community needs to be able to speak up and it's our job to help the community to be able to, 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 to come up with ways of being able to communicate um, their, our needs, because it's not just them, it's us. We need to be able to communicate with each other. Yeah. So, um, so you've had a chance to, um, you've had a chance to see what I've been able to do um, with this particular platform, how could we use a platform such as this one or social media or any of the other um, tools that are available to everybody? How can we create the um, create that responsible revolution, that transformation? 
How do we so do one that? One of the things that I think you've sparked is, and I, uh, I, I know that you had Dr. Gamble on your show a couple of uh, weeks ago, but I think that as I have talked to faculty members about the ways that you have made this platform um, value-adding at so many levels, it just sparks so much interest. What I'd like to be able to see is at least one um, one uh, similar kind of opportunity in every division in the college. So it starts to give every division in the college its own vehicle for having at least a monthly kind of outreach that ties to a broad public, right? And I think that it's just an, an opportunity for people to be able to share. You have um, these amazing scholar, teacher, activist leaders on our campus. And many of them don't have a platform for allowing the world to know about that good. And I, I, I believe that academics really have a dual, a dual responsibility, kind of a dual-facing responsibility for who they are as intellectuals. I think that there's the academic side of that, but there's also the public-facing side of that. And I think that mm-hmm. this type of vehicle allows you to accomplish both of those ends. And so um, I'm really interested to see how Dr. Gamble's um, blog takes off, podcast takes off, but I'm hoping that every division will have an individual who sees the benefit and wants to create a similar type of vehicle to support the same types of sharing so that they have faculty members, staff, students, community partners who can engage around themes like this and really broaden the understanding of, of just who we are as an institution. It's not just the College of Arts and Sciences, but really who is who, the University of the District of Columbia? Who are we? And it's amazing to me that given all of the good that the university is contributing, has contributed over decades, right, that people still ask the question, well, what happens over there? Really? Um, there's not a place that you can't go that UDC doesn't have presence in the city now. So we have presence in nearly every ward, right, in terms of either an academic um, program where there's a footprint for the institution or you have a current student, a, an alum, a current faculty member or a, a, um, a retired faculty person or an emeritus faculty person who is continuing to spread the good news and do the good work of the University of the District of Columbia. You've got gardens in almost every ward. You've got a farm in, in Beltsville. You've got, and so it, it just uh, continues to amaze me that people will argue that they don't know what we do. They don't know who we are. So I, I accept the challenge that it's for us to make sure that no person can say, I, I don't know what they do. Because the uh, amount of good that's happening inside the walls, around, and, and clearly well beyond the walls. I mean, you can reach internationally and find UDC faculty members, alums, current students yes, who, are, who are moving and shaking the world in ways that nobody else is. And so I'm hopeful that the work that you are doing continues to, to catch on and, and yes. really spread like wildfire across the campus not just in cast, but across the campus so that people go, that's an amazing vehicle for doing everything that, that we say we stand for. And I, yes. I think that what you're going to find in the next 
12 to 18 months that there will be four to six new platforms like yours, people doing similar things. And then I think that you'll have a community of scholars around the work that you've started. And I think you'll be able to create um, a co-op of sorts that will just be able to leverage the good all the way across. Right. Right. And that's, 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 that is important. And to be able to do it across, um, not just across campus, but, you know, even with, you know, within, um, within our, our schools, within our divisions, you know, the various communities, the various um, communities of, of people, of nationalities, of interests, um, you know, of sexualities, you know, I'm on the verge, clearly, of, 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 of understanding that I'm actually part of several communities, including transgender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a gender fluid person. And and that's mm-hmm. not me rejecting being quote unquote woman, but also embracing um those aspects um that are quite frankly butch, um, that are quite fr- frankly considered to be masculine, um, mm-hmm. that are not necessarily in a uh in a binary that goes beyond. And where else but at college campus, can you explore that in a safe space? Well, supposedly, supposedly college is supposed to be a safe space, but I think you and I both know we still got a lot of work to do when it comes to that. But here well, you know, is one of the things that we have that's really exciting that I would like to have, um, uh, and I don't know if you know Carmen Ramos uh, Pizarro, but you know, we have one of two transgender voice clinics on a university campus in the, in the area. And so okay. we have kind of planted ourselves in spaces to support communities where other people haven't necessarily planted yet. And so Carmen has been doing, Dr. Ramos has been doing amazing work, and it really has given the clinic um, opportunities around, so you can talk about diversity, you can talk about DEI, you can talk about the ways you want to train, you can have a statement. But if your campus doesn't show, not just that it welcomes, but that it actually creates spaces for, right? So it understands the needs of different communities. That's a whole other level of engagement. And that's, that's what people are looking to universities to be. And so I think it's really interesting the ways that the campus has been responsive over time, not not just, but finding new ways and with every new hire, looking to people with this very specific kind of expertise that can really offer communities and often communities that have been on the margins, right, a way right. to have supports that they've been seeking and to do it not, not in a way that's, oh, over there, but open on a campus where everybody that comes to the campus, that the doors are open and that when you looking, you're looking for this thing, we have that. You're looking for this thing, we have that. You're looking for this thing, right. we have that. And not in a way that has to advertise, oh, if you're so-and-so, you can come. We'll try to help you. If you No, we're a campus community 
that is extremely diverse. And we're diverse not just in terms of uh, the population statistics, but we're diverse in terms of the ways that we seek to provide programming that supports our communities. And I think that that's a really important story about UDC, and I hope that that's not a story that people miss. It's a really important story to have a speech and hearing clinic on that campus where all of the services are free, where you have a diversity of programming. So uh, we have clinics that serve uh, geriatric clients who have issues around aphasia, uh, language, uh, neurological-based uh, language impairment. We have a transgender voice clinic. We have a, a school-age uh, clinic for reading and writing. We have uh, early intervention clinics for zero. All of those things contained on, you know, if you think about the campus on Van Ness, it's a really small footprint, but you've got all of those things under the umbrella of, right, that you have these right. amazing opportunities for young women who have interest in creative writing to connect that with finding voice for advocacy and leadership through Hear Me Lead, right? That you have through, think about the, the, the series that Dr. Kronheimer put together for English around finding community and space to come together around themes in the higher education literature, but to make that local to UDC and allow her colleagues to meet with her and share around those things the way you guys have been doing um, the, the read and meets on Fridays, right? Just see the yes. ways that people have continued to find community. So on the 24th of, 25th of this month, I hope people know that Bernice McFadden is going to be joining us um, virtually to talk about her latest book. It's not a brand new book, but it's her latest book, Praise Song for the Butterflies. Beautiful piece of work. I mean, she's an amazing, amazing writer. I know you know her work well. But those are conversations that are open and they're free to the public. And to be able to sit at the knee, even if only virtually, of a, of a, a person of her stature who brings the stories of communities to life in ways that you feel it because you know it, right? And, and it makes you feel like there's, you're seen and there's place for you to have these conversations around the good and the bad in communities. So, I'm hoping people will join us on, on March the 25th at 6. Um, it's on the website, and people can come into okay. the, the space via the, okay. uh, the link there. Okay. Well, and, 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 and this, is, this, is, this is crucial. This is crucial. And bringing, you know, bringing, bringing, folk, bringing, uh, bringing folk to campus, you know, um, and hearing, hearing from folk. Um, and so... Um, you know the diversity committee. Um, you know under um, under Ada's leadership, we're going to be uh, we're going to be doing a present, uh, presentation um, within the next few days, um, focusing on Latina Latina women. Um, mm-hmm. You know we have Nelda Orman, um, who's coming on this weekend, um, talking about um, music innovation, um, digital innovation. Um, we have Dr. Anthea Butler from University of Penn who's coming on. Um, her new book is coming out. And, um, you know, we know her from MSNBC, so she's going to be coming mm-hmm. on my show um, for the second time. And so, you know, it, it, makes, it, it does make a mark and it makes a difference 
you being on this show twice, that actually that was a that was a that was an excellent selling point. Your your name carries, your voice carries, your influence carries. And that's what I mean by what you do makes a difference. What you have done makes a difference. And that's why it's so important that we do use these platforms, these digital platforms, and it's allowed us to expand in ways that I don't think we were able to do before um, technology became such a prominent part of higher education. So here we are. We're in that, we're, we're in these times where we have these tools, these gifts, these blessings. It's how we use it that makes a difference. You know? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Um, this has, this, 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 this really does, um, this does make the spring um, a lot, a lot brighter. Um, this actually helps to pet me up a bit. Um, I think unless, unless you, you haven't read my, my blog, you wouldn't have known that last week I wasn't feeling very, I wasn't feeling very optimistic. Um, but I think that, um, I think that we can we can come away with I think um, some light, some um, some paths, and I think that, and I'm hoping that as people listen um, again and again and again, that they come away with new ideas, new possibilities, um, and so. Um, Dr. Massey, um, what is the most important message that you want to leave for our audience um, to to ponder, um, unpack, and come away with and come back to? I think that um, through the opportunities of the university that the residents of D.C. have a path to some of the most amazing life experience and I, life experiences. And I don't think that that's always, I think people like to relegate UDC to a segment of, to being a resource for a segment of the city's population. And I think right. the, the the misunderstanding of the weight of the value of UDC is that it is a place of transformation for any and every resident of the district that wants to take advantage of what it has to offer. And so I'm excited and, and very grateful that I have had the opportunity to show up on the campus to be a part of, of the UDC story and to see its, its ability to really intrude into households and change atmosphere for whole communities because we get to touch people here and there and there and there and there and there. 
And when people look at our student population, I often uh, have an annual kind of run on just the neighborhoods we serve. You know, people think talk about D.C. and wards, but, you know, if you live in D.C., you live in D.C., people talk about yeah. what neighborhood they live in. And so we did a, a run of all the neighborhoods that were represented in, in D.C., and that's a kind of a complex way. But when you look at that map of neighborhoods that the faculty, staff, and students at UDC represent, there's almost no neighborhood in the city that doesn't have a, con- a direct connection to UDC either by a student a staff member, or a faculty member. That's a heck of an imprint. And so for people to deny <laughs> the value that we're adding to communities, it's yeah. like a neighborhood map that just when you hit it, it just lights up everywhere because that's how much reach we have. That's yeah. an amazing story. And I just hope that that story is told again and again and again and again. And I think that's vital in in order for us to be able to dismantle um, the isms that fuel that, you know, such a limited way of thinking about UDC, first of all. Um, And second of all, I think that that is a brilliant way of recruiting more students, of bringing more people to UDC. Um, and to think about um, education um, beyond um, the limits um, of those isms um, that lead people to to make assumptions. Um, What message would you like to leave for our leadership on our board, our leadership, on our quote-unquote third floor um, and our, our faculty leadership? So I do think that the last year has really seen, um, and you've been a critical part of this um, conversation push, for everybody to show up at the table and um, get a chance to speak. I think that you yeah. have a president and a provost who are showing up routinely at Senate meetings. You didn't always have that, right? And that you right. have um, an active board of trustees that is tuned into all matters UDC and not um, cherry-picking the things that feel comfortable, but understanding the overarching, you know, the 30,000-foot story, but drilling into the weeds to make sure that they understand that the resources and the good really are reaching to students, that that that's the mission of the institution, that we get to students, that we get into communities. Um, And so I'm I'm hopeful that process will be allowed to continue to be open, that there's got to be a level of transparency. And I think that President Mason has moved us toward levels of transparency that weren't always um, experienced on the campus. But I think on all sides, everybody's got to be pushing toward that same thing. So students, faculty members, staff, you know, we often exclude staff in conversations around governance and, and management of the institution, institutional effectiveness. They're the front line right. of the institution often. Uh, the students get to them before they get to you or me, right? 
And so right. if you don't have shared vision, um, shared platform, you're disenfranchising a large segment, perhaps one of the most important segments, not if, if not the most important segment of your workforce. And so that's the place where we've got to do some more work. And so I'm hopeful that across the balance of this academic year and into the fall, that we will identify some opportunities to do some, some real team building in ways that are fun and, and inclusive and that really push each one of us to ask the question, okay, how am I showing up, right? Because it's easy to look across the table and say, I don't like the way he's showing up. I don't like the way they show up. I don't like the way she shows up. But when I turn the mirror on me, Am I certain that I'm showing up in ways that really add value? And so across the balance of this year and into the fall, that's my question for myself every day. People, how are you showing up? You know, you, this is what you say. How do you make right. that mission speak and that vision speak actionable? And will the people around right. you validate that that is indeed what you do? Right on. So that, right would, on. Be, right on. that would be what I would ask of everybody. Okay. And that's and listen and that, I think that's the, I think that's I think that's the point I think that's the point. Um, and one last thing is before we before we take off because I know there's a board meeting. Um, what do we as faculty need to do to show up and to help our students and our community folks show up um, and communicate? You know, I think it's easy, particularly pandemic has forced us all to just be so concerned about, oh, what's going to happen to me? That it's easy to get to get caught up in our own stuff, right? Okay. And at the end of the day, no matter what happens to us individually, to any one of us, we're still leaps and bounds ahead of where our students are trying to go, right? So we can't lose focus on why we drive to Van Ness what those buildings represent in terms of what happens inside. And so my hope is that as faculty members, staff, and administrators come together, that we are never on the outside of what our responsibility is to students. And when those things don't come together one voice, I think that we find ourselves in places that we just, well, we can't we can't do good because the the conversations drill down to what about me? What's gonna to happen to me? Where's my where's this? Right. And it right. never can be about right. it never can be about the individual. It can only be about. And so until we That's, are all willing to just stand there, oh. even when it's uncomfortable, even when we're whatever, you know. Yes, and that's and, and I think that's what I've been saying, and I keep saying it, and I keep saying it, and I keep saying it. And sometimes I don't say. I, sometimes you know me, you know. I'm, I, I sometimes I got interesting ways of, of expressing it, but then I cleared up, um, cleared up, and I then I literally went through my blog and I had to re had to reshape it because I had to kind of be like. Yo, all right. I'm getting caught up a little bit. I gotta, I gotta right. get myself back together and rethink and reshape so that 
as I'm communicating. And it's still the message. That's what I put in my narrative this year. That's what I put on my blog. That's what I've communicated when I decided to connect with the, uh, with the um, Irish American Writers and Artists Association. And that's what I'm communicating now, that we all have to, we have to, con- we have to connect. Um, and if, you know, whether we are connecting because we want to build something or if we see something that's not quite right, yeah, we need to speak up. Right. And right, right. even if it's not comfortable, we have to speak up. And that's what academic freedom is all about. I get our provost's point about, you know, well, we don't want to have academic license. I looked that up and I saw something about digital. <laughs> um, but I think I understand what his point was, that you don't want to just be out there saying whatever because then you, you, end up, um, you end up with some of this stuff that led to January 6th. Um, on the other hand, I think that it is important to be able to speak up and to be able to, if we don't agree, to actually articulate it and say how and where and here's where we could go instead of going in that direction. Or maybe we need to pull back a little bit, have a further conversation, communicate, reach out. And so I guess my message to everybody across the board, whether you're an administrator, faculty, student, community, um, staff, is that we all need to, 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 to do what we can to build those bridges. And if you find that one path, if you find a roadblock, you find another. That's something that I've had to learn spiritually, so to speak, that we find different different ways. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why my mother and I are still talking. My mother and I, we don't see eye to eye on a whole lot of things. And I'm quite sure she's freaking out by now because I have acknowledged that I am not only bisexual, but I'm also transgender. I'm also gender fluid. That goes against her principles, but she and I are still talking we just have to find other ways of being able to communicate. And that's the thing. You keep you gotta keep some doors open. You know, President Mason has some great ideas, but it's not enough. We need more. So we need to communicate better. And so we need to find a way of being able to communicate. And so I want you able to come back to this show. I want Potter to come back. And, yes, I want President Mason to come back on this show because this is a place where academic freedom is practiced and recognized. And I want us all to be able to, um, to think of our classrooms as spaces where students can speak up. So I have an apology to my students to make tomorrow. And so I, I don't want them to think that I'm shutting them down. If they want to have President Mason in the classroom, we can have them in the classroom, but we need to make sure that everybody gets to be heard and be mutually respected. And I think that that's so important. And that means you coming to the classroom as well, and that everybody needs to be able to speak up and to be able to communicate 
what our mutual needs are and our mutual concerns are and to find out what it is. Where do we, where, where do we match up and where we don't? That means that, yes, look, I'm an officer in the union. We're talking. You and I don't agree on a whole lot of stuff, but we agree on a whole lot of stuff as well. There's love. There's mutual respect between us. Plus, we're both from Ohio. Come on now. So this is what where it's at. And we ain't got nobody else but each other, right? So let's get at it. Well, so I would disagree on that point. I think that you have an amazingly broad community, and I think that through the college I do too. And so yes. I really think that, you know, at the end of the day, the expectation is not for daily kumbaya moments, right? But I think the expectation is that when we look down the road that we see that everybody's on the same page for students. And so when you start conversations of any sort around what students have asked us for, what we know our communities are telling us that they need to take back to them, what our students who are out in the world, in the workforce, as activists, leaders, you know, experts generating new knowledge and new opportunity, novel solutions to recurring problems. That's the direction that we take. And so that's not about a person. You know, the thing that I like about President Mason is that he has, he will be the first person to say he doesn't expect that he will have all of the answers, but he does expect that he takes the opportunity to create a platform for all of the answers to be uh, found. And I think that that's an amazing, um, you know, an amazing leadership skill where you come to the table saying you, you, you shouldn't look to me for all of the answers. You should look to me for leadership around a platform that helps us arrive at the right places as a community. And I think that you can't ask for better than that. And so people then when somebody gives you license to be a part of a conversation and people refuse to step up and talk, you can't blame the leader for that because the leader has said it here. There's a seat at my table, at this table. The university's table is open to the town halls or indication of the table being open to all, right? And so when people stand on the sideline and want to be critical – you can't stand on the sideline and be critical when the table has a seat for you and you're refusing right. to take it because it's easy to stand on the sideline and be critical of people. It's hard. I mean, you know, you, you're an agitator, and I mean that in only the best of ways, right? That's a hard line to take because it puts you on the outside, and nobody wants to be on the outside. Everybody wants to be in a place where they feel in, Right. But there's no place for in when change is afloat at every turn, necessarily, right? So I think that people have to be willing to to be honest, to also be transparent, but to lead with students first. Because if I'm leading with students first, when I talk about this program or that thing or that person, it's not an agenda for April Massey. It's an agenda for the 105 students who are in that program right now. And if it goes left, we have disrupted years of their lives, right? We have taken yeah. money. We have taken time. We have 
So if I only focus on the end user, student, I never enter a conversation, this is what I want to do, my agenda is. I try very hard to make sure that in my head I understand this has nothing to do with me except that I have some skills that I can bring to the table to help create the right kind of energy, the necessary synergies around the work. And when people miss that understanding and miss, mm. you're, you're misunderstanding because that's not the way that you want anybody showing up. And when it looks too much like it's about the person, your mom's a minister, right? Yes. Okay, so you're, you know this because you've lived this. When the church becomes the minister, the church has missed the point. It has. It becomes a popularity show. It becomes uh, it, it becomes pretty much what we saw uh, what we saw at Capitol Hill, where it you know where the GOP has literally become the fan party for for Trump. That's it. And 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 so wherever you happen to be in the political um, political perspective, that is, but that is the end for totalitarianism. That is the end game for the, um, you know, for, for being on the ultimate right. And that is um, looking to one or two people as opposed to saying we, us, then it's, I, 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 I've done this. I've accomplished that. Gosh, it's one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, outside of the classroom, I really am reluctant with the I, I, I. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I, I struggle um, with the doctor this, and seeing that, and on the one hand, there's that, but on the other hand, we don't want to deny accomplishments and what gifts that that, that God slash goddess um, has has given us, but at the same time, not being so caught up in the individual individual accomplishments, individual achievements, individual desires, and that's what my concerns have been. And that's why I speak up the way that I do, because it really cannot be about an individual. It really has to be all of us. We have to bring each other along because we are working for the collective and for collective um, achievement as opposed to individual achievement. Dr. Massey, you... um, You've been you've been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on my show, and thank you so much for the work and the service that you have done and you continue to do for UDC, for the DC community, and for um, you know for all of the communities um, you know that that come through um, our campus. Thank you so much. So I want to say thank you to you, and I just appreciate that you, it's an honor to appear on the show for you to give me this opportunity just to, I, I enjoy having the conversation with you, but I, I appreciate just being given a platform where I can talk about 
the really exciting things that we're doing, attempting to do, and the ways that we're having influence on um, the lives that we're touching and, and as those lives get to touch this um, really important city. So thank you so much, um, and I look forward to being able to have conversation with you again. You're doing excellent work. Um, this is an excellent vehicle, so thank you. All right, all right. So to the audience, thank you so much for joining us. Um, tune in. We'll be back this weekend, um, and we'll hear next from Dr. Nelda Orman from the music department. Have a good evening, good night, and please stay safe. Wear your mask, even if you got your shot. Wear your mask. Until they say for us to stop wearing masks, wear your mask, wash your hands, practice social distancing. Good night, everybody. Good night, Dr. Massey. Bye.